I'm Michael Barber, and this is the Accomplishment Podcast. My guest this week has a distinguished and expansive CV that ranges from high office in politics to academia and diplomacy. Lord Patton of Barnes, Chris Patton, is currently Chancellor of the University of Oxford, but he's probably best known for being the last Governor of Hong Kong. His account of that time, The Hong Kong Diaries, has just been published and is a remarkable and fascinating account of his stewardship of Britain's last major colony. Chris first entered politics in the late 1970s, becoming a minister under Margaret Thatcher and later becoming Conservative Party chairman under her successor, John Major. Despite successfully leading the Conservatives to election victory in 1992, Chris lost his own parliamentary seat in Bath. He was a loyal supporter, good friend and close colleague of John Major and had lots of options after the 1992 election. But Chris chose to accept the Prime Minister's offer of the post of Governor of Hong Kong, knowing he would be the last one. I asked him if, when he looked back over that very distinguished career, it was the best job he had ever had. Yes, it is. It's not necessarily the most difficult or rewarding, because I think what I subsequently did, for example, reorganising the police service in Northern Ireland, I think has brought uh, longer-term benefits. But certainly, deciding to go to Hong Kong rather than the other things that were on offer, or the thing which had been intended for me if I hadn't lost my seat, I think choosing Hong Kong was an absolutely right decision. When you first arrived in Hong Kong, and obviously you thought about it and got brief before you went, you knew you had a five-year term because there was a very definite handover moment. So it wasn't there wasn't a debate about when it would finish. There was a deadline. Just briefly, because it's a long time ago now, explain why were the British handing Hong Kong over to the Chinese in 1997? Well, we'd acquired Hong Kong in a way different from most of the rest of our empire. And uh, nobody now seeks to justify the way we acquired that empire. It's wrong, I think, to apply current moral concerns to what happened in the 19th or 16th or 17th century. But nevertheless, you wouldn't now justify the way we'd acquired Hong Kong, for example. Part of Hong Kong, the actual island and the tip of the, um, the Kowloon Peninsula, were acquired as a result of the not surprising, British victory in the Opium Wars in the 1830s and 40s, which was when Britain was trying to be blunt to pay for the costs of the Raj in India by getting the Chinese to buy opium. So we could have their silver and tea and they would get uh, India's opium. It's not fair to blame Britain entirely for the opium trade because later on, for example, Mao Zedong was paying for the Communist Party largely by selling opium. But nevertheless, it's a pretty disagreeable start. We took those territories on a lease, a 99-year lease. And I think as a lot of people with leasehold find out sooner or later, even 99 years does end sooner or later. So that posed significant moral and political problems, both for the British and the Chinese. We weren't doing what we would normally do in a colony which is to prepare it for independence. And we'd put in place all the sort of things you find in uh, Professor Jennings' book on the British Constitution. 
bicameral legislature, um, separation of powers, and so on and so on. For the Chinese, it was difficult for two reasons, both because they were acquiring or getting back a part of their country which was governed entirely differently. Um, and secondly, because the majority of the population, by the time they were going to get it back in 1997, were themselves refugees from Chinese communism. So since one of the basic uh, arguments of the Chinese Communist Party is that in order to be a Chinese patriot, you have to love the Communist Party. Well, you couldn't expect people who left China in the, in the Cultural Revolution or the Great Leap Forward or the Great Famine to do that. Yes. And, and by the time you went in 1992, after that election, there was already an agreement that your former boss, Margaret Thatcher, had signed in the 1980s about the process of the handover that, that had taken a lot of negotiation. So that was your kind of marching orders yeah. were in that agreement, weren't they? It was called the, the Joint Declaration and was contained in a treaty lodged at the UN. And then it was turned into a mini constitution for Hong Kong called the uh, the basic law. It was fundamentally constructed around a, a mantra of Deng Xiaoping's, the Chinese leader who followed Mao. It was actually probably his view um, of how to deal with Taiwan in the future. The proposition was one country, two systems. Provided you accepted um, Chinese sovereignty, you could keep your own way of doing things. Uh, China would have um, a sovereignty in foreign affairs and defense, but you'd have high degree of autonomy when it came to everything else. So China would allow Hong Kong to continue with separation right. of powers, with capitalism, with the rule of law, and so on. In your book, you know, I hear obviously about the, the, your negotiations with the Chinese. I hear about the very good team of Hong Kong civil servants you built, and that seemed to be very dedicated to the mission you've described, your growing relationship with the population of Hong Kong. I also hear about some, what would I call it, not quite what you might expect to the British Foreign Office, some hesitancy, uh, some concern that the relationship with China was more important in the end than Hong Kong. How did you find allies? You couldn't do it all on your own, could you? First of all, the Hong Kong civil service itself was, I think, in many respects, the best civil service I've worked with. They were really outstanding. Um, and it was partly, I suppose, like Singapore, a result of paying civil servants extremely well. But also they had a high social regard in the community and they had to do their jobs while under a lot of pressure from what um, a, a great uh, guardian or observer journalist called Steve Vines called the White Terror. In other words, the uh, supporters of the Communist Party, the United Front, who would be putting pressure on them and whose newspapers would be doing the same. So it wasn't easy for them, but they were packed full of integrity and very competent. Most of the civil servants I worked with were foreign office and were absolutely fine. There were one or two later on who weren't so good, but the real critics tended to be people with foreign passports, right. <laughs> and not surprisingly, particularly some expats. And there were two delusions, I think, that affected some business and some of those who are part of the sort of mush school of diplomacy. The first is that sooner or later, economic and technological change were bound to turn China into a multi-party democracy, a sort of sub-Marxist view, but a bit of a delusion, I think. S secondly, you, you couldn't really stand up to China, that if you denied China's narrative, 
you destroyed your business opportunities in China. And there was enough examples of economic coercion by the Chinese to make that passingly credible. You mentioned Michael Heseltine coming through or meeting him in London on that very theme, don't you? I mean, I think China was the only thing Michael and I at the time had disagreed on. I think he's terrific. I agreed with him about Europe and about attitudes to the public sector, private sector, balance and so on. But I didn't agree with him on China. And I think he'd, he'd been affected by the fact that part of his publishing empire had published in China. And he thought this was back in the 25 years ago. And perhaps it was easier to have this view then that China was the wave of the future. I think it's far from that. But that's something we can perhaps talk about. Having said what I've just said about the people who worked with me and the people who were critics, I think it helped that I behaved in a fairly normal way. I didn't wear that sort of Ruritanian field marshal's uh, outfit. When I asked uh, Queen Elizabeth whether it would be all right if I just wore normal clothes, she sent a message back through her private secretary saying that was fine, but she hoped I'd at least wear a, com- a collar and tie for investitures. You invested in public services, not least eventually the new airport. You left the place in really good shape. That's quite a generous way of uh, handing over a former colony. Well, the Chinese couldn't believe that we wouldn't sail off with all the bullion in the in the ship. And they couldn't believe when we were pressing them to allow us to go ahead with the airport because it's it straddled 1997. They couldn't believe that we weren't setting it up as a sort of pork barrel for British companies. But my favorite moment was when, after we'd, in a budget, increased spending on health, uh, education, welfare, started pensions, the local New China News Agency, which was the Communist Party's um, office on the spot, uh, denounced me for, for being a socialist and, <laughs> and frittering away the money, um, yes, well- which was great coming from a communist official. I found in your book real pearls of wisdom about how to handle these big public affairs. And one of the things you say about the relationship with China, you're actually quoting George Shultz dealing with Ronald Reagan. And you have this line that says, the relationship flowed from the decisions you took rather than the other way around. So you, yeah. you took you took decisions rather than trying to sweeten everybody in advance because you knew you couldn't do that. But once you'd taken the decision, the relationship then flowed. That, that's a very active view of public service, isn't it? And in particular, in relation to uh, another country, in relation to the future sovereign in Hong Kong, it avoided preemptive cringing or the assumption yeah. that you had to clear everything with China and then tell people in Hong Kong what you were doing. And that had worked extremely badly. For example, the first attempts to set up a court of final appeal to replace the Privy Council after 1997. I mean, that's under some pressure now. But the attempts to do that in the first place, they'd been negotiated pretty well with China and then announced, and the Legislative Council and the local legal profession weren't having any of it. They thought it was a terrible deal. And it seemed to me to be a politically stupid thing to do and also morally the wrong way around. We were already, I think, or felt under pressure, I certainly did, at the fact that all this had to happen for historical reasons without people in Hong Kong having a say in it. You also have a thing about keeping at it, generating momentum, not sitting passively. You quote Justice Holmes, the great American Chief Justice, that you can sail with or against the wind, but you cannot lie at anchor. You constantly seem to be generating momentum because that was one way you could get change. Is that, is that a general view you've had through your career? Yeah, it's a general view as I've got about political responsibility. Once you start marking time, 
you are in trouble, I think. You have yeah. to keep moving. Otherwise, as might be rather obviously, you lose momentum and other people start finding uh, things wrong with your stationary yeah. position. I think it's really important. It's important, which is something you've um, focused attention on over the years. It's very important to have real targets and to tell people whether you've got them or not, and to explain if you don't reach them, why you haven't got them. And it certainly was the case in all our public spending. And one of the great things in Hong Kong was how rapidly things happened once you'd taken a decision. I mean, building the airport, building the new convention center, building their bridges, all of those things, once you took a decision, it would happen. It would put it be put into place with remarkable yeah. speed. There's another pearl of wisdom that I loved in your book, which is when you're the boss, you can't let on that you're scared witless, you say. Were you scared? Not on a personal sort of safety level, but were there times when you thought this might end badly? Yes. I mean, there was one in particular when we'd been negotiating this package of changes, extremely limited changes, all within the joint declaration, which increased the number of people who could vote in elections and made the election process both clearer and fairer. It didn't produce total democracy in Hong Kong, but the majority of the legislature were going to be elected in a fair way. And it had to go to the Legislative Council. A lot of the members were under huge pressure from their employers, outside politics, from others who were being pressed by the Communist Party in Beijing um, to get them to vote down these measures. And it was sort of touch and go for a week or two. And I knew perfectly well that if this package, which had generated a huge amount of heat and controversy, but not very much, uh, I knew that if that didn't go through, I'd have to be off because I couldn't possibly continue if I lost the sort of what was thought to be the main part of my agenda. So that was a pretty nerve-wracking time. And I certainly, when, when we won that vote, I went pretty well straight from my private office. It was the middle of the night and put the Te Deum on, <laughs> on my... <laughs> On my um, DVD yeah. player. It wasn't a, a huge majority either, was it? That, uh, if no, I it was, right, it was, it was, very, it was very small. Yeah. And then subsequently went through very well. But the very first vote was a pretty tiny majority. Right. What was happening, of course, the pan-Democrats, who were wonderful, and were, but they always wanted me to do more and were fairly grudging about anything we did. And I understood it because they'd been let down by the British before so many times. And there was one thing which stuck in my head the whole time, that perhaps the principal architect of British policy on China for years before I got into the job was a distinguished diplomat called Sir Percy Craddock. And he'd said to me, and he said to other people, he'd said to me before I went to Hong Kong, and he knew what he was talking about because he'd been in the embassy during the Cultural Revolution when the Chinese gangs had, had burnt the embassy down. He said, the leadership, he said, may be thuggish dictators, but they're men of their word. Well, we subsequently discovered that part of that is true, but not the other part. Yes. And I was very always always very conscious of the fact that there was there was this assumption in bits of the Foreign Office, though not overall, a certain generation in the Foreign Office that by and large that they'd they'd stick to what they they'd agreed. Well, the British civil service is fantastic. I haven't, I have, except on visits, experienced the Hong Kong civil service in the way you described. 
But there is a tendency in the civil service, I think it's probably true outside of Britain as well, to want to avoid a scene. And sometimes the relationship flows from the decision rather than the other way around, because the, the people who want to avoid a scene kind of fudge everything in advance so that there isn't a scene, but you don't There's necessarily a... get where you are. And there is an element of that in the Foreign Office as well as in the civil service more broadly. Yeah, there is an ele- there is with the idea, really, that foreign policy is about being nice to foreigners. Yes. Going, going back to George Shultz, who was, a, was an extraordinary public figure in America, when he was Secretary of State, um, when they'd appointed a new ambassador, he would ask the new ambassador to come into his office and, and have a chat with him about the job. And he'd take them over to a globe and say, where's your country? And they would look around for Mongolia or, or New Zealand or whatever and point to it. And he said, no, 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 your country is the United States. <laughs> I mean, it, was a, it, was a, it was a very good way of, of, of making the point. But the best diplomats are, of course, well aware of the fact that they occasionally have to cause a fuss. One of the very practical ways in which I think that mush um, got in the way of decency was in the way we very often with nasty regimes treated the position of dissidents who were in prison. And this was made pretty strongly by some of the Russian dissidents after the breakup of the Soviet Union, when they were getting out and were able to talk again. And they would always make the point that when there was a ministerial visit from a liberal democracy, their treatment would always get better if the visiting minister made a fuss about them and did it publicly. There wouldn't be any effect at all if if ministers did what it was often said should be done, which is to raise it quietly. They're much better yes. if you if yes. you don't make this too much of a fuss about this. And that was always wrong. So I think you always have to call out bad behavior in other countries, even at the risk of a bad headline in their press. Just before the handover, there was an election in Britain. Tony Blair became prime minister. Your your friend and former colleague, John Major, uh, stepped aside and went to the Oval and watched cricket. So for the handover itself, you had a, an incoming Labour prime minister new in the job. But you didn't leave from the roof uh, in a helicopter. You did leave uh, with Prince Charles uh, in an orderly manner after really quite a nice handover ceremony that took some negotiation. Just describe how it felt to be leaving at that moment after all you'd done. It was personally difficult because we were leaving so many friends because my whole family had had uh, such a wonderful five years. They hadn't been there the whole time. I mean, a couple, a couple yeah. of them were at university, but they'd had a, a, a great life. I'd had a great life. It had been very rewarding in most respects. I hoped that things would stay in the same sort of situation. I assumed that the Chinese wouldn't have made so much fuss over every tiny detail if they were then going to walk away from things. I mean, it just seemed to me to be crazy. What I hadn't really comprehended was the extent to which the whole event would be watched by so many people around the world and that so many other countries would identify with it as an end of empire. So the handover in the end went very smoothly. And then you went on to do other things uh, in Northern Ireland that you mentioned at the beginning uh, and then becoming an EU commissioner. But when you look back over the, well, just over 25 years since you left Hong Kong, do you think you'd seen what's coming? Has it got worse? What should we be doing? Do you feel anxious about the state of Hong Kong? Yeah, they've, they've gone worse in the last few years. It was fine for about 10 or 12 years. And then with Jiang Zemin and prime ministers like... Uh, Ju Rongji and uh, Wen Jiaobo and another president or head of the um, whole shooting match, uh, Hu Jintao, 
I think what happened was the Chinese leadership started to get the impression that things were slipping and that they were losing control. And you're going to find this difficult to believe, but I'm sure that part of it was related to um, the interest that Xi Jinping's number two at the time, uh, Wang Qishan, who was uh, head of uh, the campaign against corruption, he was passionately interested in de Tocqueville. And he was particularly interested, not in democracy in America, but in the Ancien Regime and the French right. Revolution. And you actually see that there's a point in the early, sorry, about 2009, 2010, where sales of of de Tocqueville in, in China peak, and particularly it becomes compulsory reading in the, in the party <laughs> school. And the two things that Wang Qishan, I think, was, was obsessed with um, were, first of all, the fact that people don't become easier to govern just because they're better off. Um, and secondly, that authoritarian regimes are always at their weakest and most vulnerable when they're trying to reform. Yes. And they're trying to change things. I think that the Chinese leadership began to be worried that things were slipping out of control. They certainly felt that about the high-tech companies. So Xi Jinping, who was probably naturally minded to want to be on top of everything, and wanted to be on top of the Chinese Communist Party, and the Chinese Communist leadership wanted to be on top of everything in China, north, south, east, west. And Hong Kong's bad fortune was that it exemplified all the things which the Chinese leadership thought represented an existential threat. Separation of powers, rule of law, due process, the beginnings of democracy, free speech, free, freedom of assembly and worship, all those things that you associate with an open society, which um, I think they regard as a, as a real threat. Not long before you went, there'd been the whole Tiananmen Square demonstration and massacre was that always in people's minds, both Chinese and Hong Kong and British, in fact? It was always in the minds of people in Hong Kong, and not surprisingly, because it was only three years before the handover. And every year, at least until the Communist Party stopped it happening, there was a vigil um, every year, and people who were church-going would go to church services to remember the victims of Tiananmen. Meantime, the Chinese Communist Party were denying anything had happened or or finding excuses for it and denying that people were were shot by the People's Liberation Army or or squashed under the treads of tanks. It did have a huge effect on on everybody because of the the brutality with which the demonstrations were put down. If you wanted to be optimistic about the next ten years in Hong Kong, can you make that argument or is is optimism too difficult? It, it's the most difficult question I have. I'm, not very long ago, um, I was walking in uh, Richmond Park and bump into four young people. They're obviously Chinese. And one of them, one of the young men, who's about 25, I suppose, 26, was with his girlfriend and they had two friends with them. And he says to me, I know you. He said, I bet you don't remember me. So to cut a long story short, he said he'd had his photograph taken with me holding a yellow umbrella, which was the sign of the democracy movement. Yes at the time. Um, and this was his girlfriend and their two friends, one of whom was coming up to the end of a defil. And he said to me, or his girlfriend said to me, we've almost finished our studies. Do you think we should go back to Hong Kong at the end? And it's, it's the most difficult question I yes. ever have from people. And on the one hand, I can do a, a riff about how um, you, you can't ever imprison an idea 
and that uh, uh, no dictatorship ends well, and that sooner or later the balance between economic and political freedom will be found in in China and in Hong Kong again. You, I can do all that. It's a bit nebulous. You can't give people um, very straight advice on what they should do. It's their lives, and 140,000 of them um, since the crackdown in Hong Kong have um, have come to the UK to our great benefit. But uh, but as you say, not to the advantage of Hong Kong, and that was always no, China, a risk. China, The Chinese Communist Party wants Hong Kong without Hong Kongers. That's the truth uh, of the matter. I have one more question. You mentioned moral and ethical frameworks earlier on in this interview and this conversation, but your Catholic faith has been a big part of your life, going back to your childhood in Lancashire. How does your faith influence everything you've done before and after Hong Kong, but specifically in this conversation while you were in Hong Kong? You, you attended church regularly on Sundays. There are a lot of uh, Hong Kongers who are Catholic. Well, I hope I'd have a, a sense of ethical responsibility, whether or not I was a Catholic, as the most lethal sort of heathen. Um, in a remarkable way, people think this is a strange thing to say. I was happier being uh, a Catholic in Hong Kong than I have been almost anywhere else because Catholics and the Catholic Church were so involved in, in all the most testing areas of public life, whether it was the right. leaders of the <clears throat> democracy campaign like, like Martin Lee, and people like Cardinal Zen, who was a passionate believer in, in all the freedoms you'd associate with an open society. Uh, if you looked at all the sort of social areas that my wife Lavender was involved in, whether hospice care uh, or dealing with AIDS um, patients or dealing with rough sleepers, you'd find faith groups involved in those. And it was something I always felt proud of. It was very comfortable being a Catholic um, in Hong Kong. And it's why I feel very strongly about the uh, FTSE, which the Vatican has been playing with the Chinese Communist Party. I think to nobody's great benefit. I don't doubt their motives, but I don't think it's working out terribly well. And whenever the Catholic Church starts talking about real politic, um, you know you're in difficulty. Uh, yes. it, it, faith groups are in the business of, of moral concern, not uh, playing the role of states. Yes. Look, thank you very much for this conversation, Chris. As, as I knew it would, there's so much wisdom in what you talk about um, and the challenge you took on. And the Hong Kong Diaries are... A fantastic read. It's a wonderful story, beautifully told. I have no idea how you found time to write the diary, given everything else you were doing, but that was a, that was a feat in itself. But thank you very much anyway for your time. Thank you very much indeed. Much enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening to The Accomplishment Podcast and my thanks to guest, Chris Patton. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter at MichaelBarber9. There's a book that accompanies this podcast, Accomplishment, How to Achieve Ambitious and Challenging Things, published by Penguin. Also, don't forget to review the Accomplishment podcast and subscribe so you don't miss the great game changers telling their stories on how to get things done. This podcast is produced by Siobhan O'Connell, thanks to her and to the rest of the team. Mm-hmm.